Like many of you, I have followed with some interest the events and the repercussion of the events uh, from that high school in Parkland, Florida. And some of the stories were really moving. I don't know if you, you know this, but the in- instinct when a person hears shots fired is to not run in the direction of the shots. Did you know that? I actually talked to somebody a couple of weeks ago who said they were in a, a bar one time and they heard the shots and everybody ran for the exits. It's the instinct. But on occasion, there are people who will run toward the shots or will intentionally put themselves between the shots and those who could receive some harm. And so I was moved by the story of Aaron Feist, the high school assistant coach, who was also a security guard who was unarmed, who intentionally shielded a couple of students from bullets, and he died in the process. I was also moved by... 15-year-old Anthony Borges, who other students said he intentionally shielded them from bullets. He took five bullets himself, including one right in the back. He is currently in stable condition in the hospital. And if I were one of these students that were saved by Anthony or saved by Aaron, I would be thinking, I owe these people my life. Because when someone personally is a hero to you, and they personally lay down their life in a way like this, you should feel like you owe them your life. You probably do. Now, here's my question to you. Has anybody ever personally laid down their life for you like this? Well, if you've read your Bibles, you would know the answer is yes. Yes. Uh, And his name is Jesus. And what we're going to do today is just quite simply think about the heroism of Jesus And I want us to think about how unique his heroism actually is. And we'll also think a little bit about the implications for your life and for mine in terms of our followership of him. This can be a very simple message. And I want to turn our attention to a couple of passages in the Bible. Uh, One is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4, 2 through 4, and verse 11. And then also Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. So let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. Here's what the scripture tells us. 1 Corinthians 10. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Those things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Now going over to Exodus chapter 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place 
Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, I, I love this text in 1 Corinthians, which, by the way, for the next couple of months, the, our adult Bible classes are studying 1 Corinthians. And I, and I like this, this text because it reminds us that everything in the Bible is about Jesus. Everything, even these stories that don't appear to be like Jesus, they're actually about Jesus. Uh, and what that means is everything as a church is about Jesus. Everything here, the music is about Jesus, the sermon's ultimately about Jesus, the, the Sunday school classes are all about Jesus. Everything in ministry is ultimately about Jesus. And that's very exciting to me on, on lots of levels. One of the things that's exciting to me is I can go to any place in the Bible when I'm doing my readings in the morning, going through the foundations and reading from the Old Testament, I know that in some respect or another, what I'm reading is about Jesus. And here we're told in Exodus chapter 17, there's no exception here, Jesus is the rock. It tells us straight up. And so we can learn from this text things that actually directly apply to our lives and make a huge difference. And the first thing I want you to notice is this. The world in which we live is the wilderness. The world in which we live is a wilderness. When you get into the New Testament, the very first voice you hear, actually, the first voice you hear crying out is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. It's John the Baptist. Then when Jesus is led into the public ministry, you remember what happens first? He's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tested, to be tempted by the devil. And then you get over into the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 in particular, we're told that we need to look at our lives as if we're in the wilderness. And what that means is, while we have been set free from captivity, while we're no longer in slavery, we're not yet in the promised land. And so we need to take the narrative outline of wandering from freedom to our ultimate destination we need to take that wandering in the wilderness as the primary paradigm for our lives, the lens through which we look at everything about our walk in this world. That's what you need to know. The world in which you live is a wilderness. Now, when I think of wilderness, because I'm from South Texas, what I'll typically think about are mesquite trees and overgrown places and brush and places where there are coyotes and maybe rabbits and rattlesnakes and stuff like that. Maybe when you think of wilderness, you think of Alaska, or you think of a forest in North Carolina or in Colorado. But in the, in the Bible, when they were talking about the wilderness, people thought desert. And the desert is a place that doesn't support life. I mean, the salient characteristic of the desert is you can't actually live there. You can pass through, but you can't farm in the wilderness. There's not enough stuff to hunt in the wilderness. If you hunt and you gather in the wilderness, you'll die in the wilderness because it literally cannot support human life. Now, God leads people through the wilderness. They wander through there, and they wander through there for 40 years. So how did they survive? The only reason they survive is because God miraculously intervenes. He gives them manna and then the water and quail on occasion. And then there's also the, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. God is with them in the wilderness. But the only reason they ever survive there is because God is with them, miraculously providing what they need. So the world in which we live is a wilderness. What does that mean? Why does the Bible say you've got to look at this world through that particular lens with that understanding? Well, here's why. 
just as the physical desert does not support physical human life, so too the world as it is in its current condition will not satisfy and uphold and support your deepest longings and desires as a human being. If you are looking to this world to support you and your desires and have you fulfilled as a human being, you will be deeply, deeply disappointed. In fact, if you don't find a fountain in the midst of the wilderness, you will shrivel up and spiritually die. You've got to find the fountain. Because the world in its current condition, you and I, we weren't made for this world. Now we're passing through it, and God knew that we'd be passing through it, but this is not our home. This isn't the final destiny. The only thing this world promises as the wilderness that it is, is difficulty. It's trouble. The, the, this world, what it does promise, is suffering. So as Christians, when we suffer, we're not surprised. The Christian worldview would say, well, we're, we're not shocked on those occasions when we notice the suffering and feel the suffering. And when the desert gets hot and the wilderness gets wild, we aren't shocked by this because we're living in a wilderness. We should know this. Now, as Christians, this is really, really actually very encouraging to know this is the worldview because it's very realistic. If you look at religions or philosophies outside of Christianity, you'll see that the main thing that they struggle with is how do I deal appropriately with suffering? Because in those other worldviews, their understandings about suffering just don't hold up to reality. Okay, for example, and I'm going to oversimplify because we're going to move past this. But in the East, for example, in the Far East, when you're dealing with Eastern religions like Buddhism, what you're, what you're going to see is that suffering is just an illusion. It's an illusion largely created by our misconception that we're individuals. We perceive that we're individuals, and it's our individual needs that create suffering. And so the way out of suffering is to wake up, it's to be enlightened, is to see that I am actually a part of the all soul, that I'm a part of all of reality, that I'm, that I'm one with the one. And if only people were enlightened and they'd wake up, they would see that suffering is just in their head. You're imagining things when you suffer. Imagining things that aren't true. Now, that... I, I, let me just cut right to the chase. I'm a philosopher, so I can talk about this all day long, but let me just speak as a preacher. That's just crazy. Okay, now and let me just tell you why that just doesn't fit with reality. Everybody's trapped in the same illusion. If everybody's imagining the same thing around the globe, and they're trying not to imagine the same thing, but they are imagining the same thing, can you trust your senses or your reason about anything? And the answer is, well, no, you really can't. And just try this one on for size. You go to a counselor, let's say, let's say you and your, your spouse are having difficulties. You go to a counselor, and if your counselor says, hey, when your spouse complains about your snoring, for example, which that never happens around my household, but if your spouse complains, here's what you need to tell them. You're imagining things. It's all in your head. It's an illusion. You try that on for size. You're making them angry and just say, it's all in your head, sweetheart. You're just imagining. Try that one on for size. See how that works. Or your kid comes home, they had a hard day, and they're crying. Say, it's just all in your head. You're imagining things. That's not real. Or how about this one? Just live in denial. If there's a trouble in your, in your marriage or with someone in work, just bury your head in the sand and just imagine this ain't real. It's all going to go on away. That's just 
not good counsel. Okay, it's, it's easy to kind of poke fun of this, and actually uh, Mark Twain did a pretty good job of this. Mark Twain had uh, this friend, supposedly, who was into Christian science, and it's the teachings of Mary Baker Eddy. They've been around for a long time, and that is that suffering and sickness and all unhealth is essentially an illusion. It's all in your head. So Mark Twain had this little story. He said, I went over to my friend's house last week, and I knocked on the door every day of the week, and every time he would come to the door, he would say, I'm sorry, I can't spend any time with you today. My wife thinks she's sick. He said, I went by the house on Monday, then I went again on Tuesday, and both times I knocked on the door, and he came to the door, and, and, and he said, I'm sorry, I can't spend any time with you today. My wife thinks she's more sick than she was before. Then he goes over to the house on Wednesday. He said, I went to the house on Wednesday, knocked on the door, he came to the door and said, I'm sorry, I cannot spend any time with you today. My wife thinks she's dead. Now, you can kind of make fun of that, and that is dark humor, okay, but the point is, Hey, if this is just an illusion, how is it that everybody winds up six feet under eventually? It doesn't fit with reality. Now, in the West, we have a different approach generally towards suffering. We say it's very real, it's inescapable in this world, but it's kind of predictable and there's a sense to it. And here's what happens. If you're good, good things happen. If you're bad, bad things happen. Karma. What goes around comes around. It's Hindu. You, you kind of find this a lot in Islam. And it's actually kind of popular among American religious uh, peripheral Christians. You, I mean, it's the counsel of Job's friends. It's bad counsel. It's bad theology. But they say, Job, the reason you're suffering is you're doing bad things. You must have made God angry, and that's why you're suffering. It's a very common thought. You do good, good things happen. You do bad, bad things happen to you. It just doesn't match up with reality, but people think this way a lot. Suppose even for you, you go to work on Monday morning, or you go to the mall or meet somebody, and on your drive, you never hit a red light. It's just green all the way. What do you say to yourself? I must be living right. I mean, it's just, it's just kind of ingrained in us. The problem is this just doesn't match up with reality. You know it doesn't match up with reality because you know good people die young. Miserable people oftentimes live very long and apparently successful lives. It just, it just doesn't seem, life oftentimes doesn't seem fair. And we'll complain about this and we'll say that just doesn't seem fair. The reality is, suffering's real, it does hurt, it's inescapable in this world, and it doesn't seem to have a rhyme or a reason. That's what we observe, and guess what? That's what Christianity essentially teaches, because here's the thing. You go to the center of Christianity, not just to the exceptions or what's on the periphery. You go to the very center of Christianity, and what do you find? You find a good man, in fact, the only purely good man, and he suffers and suffers miserably, and it's completely unjust, and God brings the kingdom through that suffering. At the center of Christianity, you find the only purely good man, and he suffers miserably, and God is well pleased with him. This is not an exception to the rule. We just look at Jesus Christ, and we look at the overall teaching of the Scripture. We say, suffering is real. It's a part of this world because we're in this wilderness and it just comes and goes because it's a part of the human condition. But we do know that God has a plan to redeem the suffering in our lives and through our lives. But it just comes and goes because we're not living in the garden. We're not living in Eden anymore. We're not living in the kingdom come yet. Paradise hasn't been restored. Where are we living? We're living in this world which is a wilderness. That's the first thing you've got to understand. Now, since this world is a wilderness, the other thing that we need to understand is since this isn't our home, the world is a place of testing. That's the nature of the wilderness. 
It's a place of testing. One of my favorite movies just so happens to be a movie about life in the desert. It's Lawrence of Arabia. I could watch this show over and over again. It's just one of, it's one of my favorites. It's about, it's actually, if you haven't seen it, it won seven Oscars, including Best Picture in 1963. Great movie. It's about T.E. Lawrence, who's this British officer, based on a true story loosely, who is sent over into uh, the Arabian Desert, essentially. He goes to Saudi Arabia, he goes to Arabia, and he does all these adventures, and he's excited to go into the desert, and the reason is he knows it's a place of testing. He likes testing. Toward the beginning of the movie, if you've ever seen this, you know there's, he's like, he lights these little matchsticks, and he puts out the flame with his index finger and thumb, and other people watch him, and they're amazed, and this one guy tries it himself, and he says, ouch, it hurts. And Lawrence says, well, of course it hurts. And the man says, what's the trick? And he says, William Potter, the trick is not minding that it hurts. He doesn't mind it hurting. And so when he's told he's going to go into the desert, he's kind of excited about it. He says, sounds like fun. And the politician who sends him into the desert says, oh, nobody has fun in the desert. Only two creatures have fun in the desert, Bedouins and the gods. For ordinary people, it's like a fiery burning furnace. And T.E. Lawrence says, well, no, Dryden, it's going to be fun. In other words, I can't wait to see if I can keep up with the Bedouins. I can't wait to see if I can keep up with the gods. And he does on occasion. Sometimes it's fun, sometimes it's not. Sometimes he wishes he weren't in the desert anymore. And on one occasion he says, I don't ever want to see the desert again. But the point is, he knows it's a place of testing. And this is why he wants to go. Why is it that young men want to go off to war? Nobody should want to go to war, but why is it that young men want to do this? Well, here's why. Because people, on occasion, rightly so, don't mind being tested. Because in the place of testing, you find out who you are, and in the place of testing, you have a chance to grow. And you see this happening for, for Lawrence of Arabia, and it happens actually for everybody who understands, I'm in a place of testing. But here's the thing. While people of character understand Testing is good and it helps me to grow. The reality is you're not going to pass a test, not going to do very well on the test, if you don't recognize it's a test. And you will really do well in the place of testing if you recognize this is not a garden, it's a desert. You're not going to do well if you go into the desert expecting it to be like a garden. And you're not going to do well if in the midst of your testing, in the midst of the wilderness, you expect God to change your wilderness into the garden because it's gotten difficult for you. And where you really fail and where I really fail are on those occasions where I look at my place of testing and use it as an opportunity to test God as if I'm the one giving the test and God is the one who answers to me. You remember Jesus, he goes to this place of testing. This is in Matthew chapter 4. He's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tested, to be tempted by the devil. And while he's there, there are these three basic temptations. Let's, let's read about one of them while he's in this wilderness testing. Verse 5, the scripture tells us, Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. In other words, Jesus, do what you want. God's got your back. You set the agenda. He'll pass the test and support you in the way you want to go through your wilderness. And Jesus says this, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
the essence of the satanic test here is to put God to the test. And Jesus knows this is my place of testing. It's not God's place of testing. It can't be both at the same time. Either God is the test giver and I'm the test taker, or I'm the test giver and God's the test taker. And when you get that backwards and upside down and inside out, that is the essence of sin in the wilderness. By the way, when Jesus says, it is also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, where he says, don't put the Lord your God to the test as they did in Massah, pointing back to Exodus chapter 17. It all ties together. See, here's the thing. When the desert gets really hot, when the wilderness gets really, really wild, we have this tendency to forget it's not a garden. We just have this tendency to be thinking it's a wilderness and... And I didn't expect this, and it shouldn't be this way now. And we forget that we're on a journey. We forget this isn't our final destination. We forget this isn't our home. And all of a sudden, real quickly, we start testing God and saying, God, why are you doing this? Because if it was up to me, I would go from point A to point B like this. And if it was up to me, I'd already be here, and you've got me over here. And I thought by this point in my life, and in my journey through this life, I wouldn't be alone anymore, or I would not be alone again, or I would have achieved this, and now you've got me stuck over here. And we start telling God how it is that we ought to be traveling through the wilderness, and we're testing Him, saying, answer to me, why are you doing it this way? We forget it's our place of testing, not his. And when the suffering comes or when you start to really notice it and feel it, here's what happens. Either God gets bigger in your mind, he becomes bigger in your vision, and you trust in him more than ever to get you through the test, or you get bigger in your own eyes and you start putting God to the test and you're making him answer to you. Same desert, same suffering, but the same sun that melts wax will harden clay. And so in those moments of testing, you get to see who you are and if your perspective is right or twisted. Same sun, same suffering. Is my heart right? Is it soft? Is my perspective appropriate? Or is my heart hard? Is my perspective off? And am I testing God? You really get to see. Are you a follower or are you looking at God as your butler? It's a place of testing. Now back to Exodus chapter 17. These people are being tested. They've come to a very narrow spot and they feel a little stuck and they feel a little trapped and they feel like it's the end. And what do they do? Here's what they do. They fail the test so badly they're, they're almost flunking out of school. They start quoting or, or quarreling with Moses and they say, so they quarreled with Moses and they said, give us water to drink. And when it says quarrel here, it's critical to understand that in the Hebrew, the word quarrel means to file a complaint. It means to lodge a complaint. To file a charge. And the charge is serious. In fact, it's a charge that is basically a capital crime because they're wanting to stone Moses. Moses said, these people are ready to stone me. So the charge is serious and the charge is essentially treason. They're accusing Moses of treason. Criminal stupidity that's going to undermine and cause the death of a nation. And so they say, you've just let us out here to die. And since all of our bones are going to bleach white in the sun, might as well be your bones first. And so the charge toward Moses is treason. It's a capital crime, and they are serious about this. But Moses understands they're not just suing me. They're suing God because I'm just a representative of God. And the reality is when you and I, we start getting upset about our circumstances or we get upset at a superior, you just keep pressing down the line. And ultimately, God's the Supreme Court. That's ultimately where we take it. 
it's amazing how frequently people will subtly sue God. Well, I thought it was going to be this way, and it turned out to be this way. I thought I was going to be on this line, and I'm on some line over here. I thought I was going to be doing this, and God, you brought me down here, and I was planning on this, but you brought me over here, and I don't like it, and are you sure you know what you're doing? And the people start suing God because they say, our exodus isn't going the way we planned. You're failing. Now, Moses understands that suing God is not a real good idea, especially since he's the one keeping us alive. Especially since he's the one that's been providing the manna and keeping us alive in this place that isn't supposed to support life. He knows the people he's leading are failing and they're flunking out of school. And he recognizes if you sue your partner, well, that means you're you're wanting out of the partnership. And if you sue your partner, does your partner really want to stay with you? And if you're married and it's the husband that sues the wife and the wife is suing the husband, what are they doing? They're wanting a divorce. Moses is thinking, this is not good. If you make a charge, it's going to lead to a trial. And sure enough, God says, there's a trial coming. And Moses sees it in two things. God says, get your staff and get the elders together. Now, the staff or the rod is the staff or the rod of God's judgment. Staff commonly just meant a, a, a authority. That's what they stood for. And in fact, in, in the Roman language, there's this word phoskes, and it stands for all of these rods that are tied together, and it was the ultimate symbol in the Roman Empire of authority and power. And here, Moses has the specific rod that he's struck the Nile with and has turned it into blood. It's the rod that he's used to bring judgment down on the people of Egypt so that the Hebrews will be let, let go. It's the rod he touches the water with and it turns into blood with regards to the Nile. It's the rod of justice. It's the rod of judgment. It's the rod of execution. Also, he has to get the elders together. And when you got the elders together, you were holding court. You, made, you got the people together to have an official decision that would have ramifications for the nation. So there's going to be a court. There's going to be a trial. And Moses is thinking, okay, I know what's happening here. There's going to be a trial. Whose trial is it going to be? Well, it's going to be the trial of the people because they've accused me of treason, and they're the ones that are being treasonous. They're the ones that are saying, we do a better job running the nation than you, God, and I think we'd rather do it our way than yours. They were accusing Moses, Moses of treason. They're the ones that are being treasonous. It's time for God to cut them off. God is going to put the hammer down on these people. They're going to get it. That's what Moses is thinking, rightly, but actually wrongly, because here's what happens. Look at verse 6. God says, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now Moses must, must have been absolutely shocked. He's thinking it's time for them to be, to be cut off. It's time for them to be judged. And you know what happens? They get provision. They get a drink. They deserve to be spanked, and instead, they're refreshed. Doesn't make any sense to Moses. And here's what gets even weirder about it. When, when God says, I will be by the rock, or at the rock in Horeb, on the rock is a, probably a better translation, but God is associating himself with the rock. Here's where it gets really weird. The Hebrew word that talks about stand before you, like God says, I'll stand before you, that word is almost always used in the Hebrew of a servant or a slave who stands before the master in order to be punished or in order to meet a certain demand or requirement. You know what God is saying? He's saying, I'm going to stand before you people in the position of the defendant. I'm not going to be the judge. I'm going to be the defendant. 
I'm going to stand in, in the dock of the defendant and let the judgment come down on me. And when he tells Moses, I'm, I'm standing on the rock, you strike the rock with the rod of judgment, Moses has to be thinking, this is really getting dangerous here because he had to have known I can't physically touch God. He's spirit. I can't take a stick and drive it into the heart of Shekinah glory of God. He knows this. But he also knows you don't touch what God touches lightly. When God is on the Mount of Sinai, the people don't go to the mountain. Why? Because if they're touching the mountain while God is on the mountain, everybody dies. The animals die. Everybody avoids the mountain because... That's like the lightning rod. When the lightning is striking the rod, you don't touch the rod or you die. So Moses says, I'm a little bit scared of this, but God is on the rock and he strikes the rock, but nobody dies. Moses doesn't die. The people don't die. And everybody gets refreshed. God gets struck and everybody lives. What is going on here? Well, we know what's happening. You go over to the New Testament and we're told the rock is Jesus Christ. And we recognize that when sinful humanity strikes God, there is a death, but it's not ours, it's His. And we get to drink. He is struck, so we don't have to be. Jesus went into the wilderness and He passed the test. And He passed the test by not testing God. But He didn't do that just as your example and my example he did that as your substitute and my substitute so that when we come to the rock, we could drink. Because Jesus takes the place that he did not deserve. Here's what happens. When we come to him, we never thirst. Instead, he says, in fact, in John chapter 7, from inside of us will be the spring of living water. Because of him, we get to drink. Now, this is absolutely astonishing. Because again, when it comes to people doing heroic actions, when the shots start firing, our tendency is to run in the opposite direction. But on occasion, a person will give up their life for a friend. On a rare occasion, they might lay down their life for a stranger, or at least risk it. But who in the world takes the bullet intentionally so as to save the life of the person who's shooting them? God did what he did at the rock because he knew if the people get what they're asking for, a divorce from me, to be their own God and run their own show, they will be cutting themselves off from the very thing that is keeping them alive. And in order for me to do for them what I want to do, which is to give them life, I am going to do what they're asking I'm going to be the defendant. And I'm willingly going to take the bullet that they are gladly shooting in my direction. Who does that? What kind of hero willingly dies for their assailant? I can think of one. Jesus. And that's it. We're about out of time, so let me just throw out three very practical questions of application. In light of the fact that this world is a wilderness and it's our place of testing, and in light of the truth that Jesus passed the test like no one else ever has or ever will, here, here are the three questions of application. 
The first question would be this. Ask yourself this question. In the week that follows, with whatever comes my way, in the testing that is surely to come in this week to come, will I simply accept the test and refuse to put Jesus to the test in light of the fact that he's already passed the greatest test anyone could ever give. And why would I continue with my life to test God and call him into question when I know he's already passed the biggest test of all? Am I going to be heroic and refuse to test God? Here's the the second question of application, and that would be, can I see that Jesus really is the true hero and I'm the zero, that he actually took the bullets for me, not as someone who was unfairly assaulted, but as someone who was unfairly assaulting him? Here's the third question. Can you see that Jesus is not only the king and the Lord, but he's also your hero? Worthy of passionate followership. You know, last week we were talking about following Jesus, and he's the Lord and he's the king and he deserves our followership. That's his position. But when you see that he's your hero, when you see he is a friend like no other, Why is it that you would even remotely want to withhold your life from him? You owe him your life. Can you follow him as your hero? You should. And that changes not just your actions, but your disposition toward what it is that he asks. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Jesus, you are a a hero like no other. And uh, Lord, we know what the Scripture teaches that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. You took the bullet and in many respects it was coming from us. We we have even, even now, even as people who should know better on occasion, we get mad at you as if This is our final home, and you never said it was. We get upset with you because you're not doing our exodus the way we were expecting. We get mad at you because you haven't turned this fallen world into a garden now for us. Lord, we should trust you. The people of of Israel should have trusted you then. You set them free, and you promised them a promised land flowing with milk and honey. And not only did you make them this promise and set them free by your grace, but you were also there with them every step of the way. They were in the wilderness, they were in difficulty, and you were there in the midst of their difficulties with them, and still they had issues of trust. And now we get the perspective, we see what it is that you've done. You have stood on the rock and have taken the strike for us, and the rock is Jesus Christ. You have passed The greatest test of all. A test like no other. Now of all times, we should be able to see. We can trust you. And not only can we trust you, and not only should we trust you, we should trust you with joy because you've done for us what no other could. You are the hero to end all heroes. 
So, Lord, if we are holding anything back from you as followers, I pray, Lord, you would drive us to our senses, that you would awaken us to your goodness, that we would follow you with gladness and joy. And whatever it is that you would tell us to do, wherever it is that you would send us to be, we would follow and follow with gladness because we owe you our lives. Apart from the fountain in the midst of our wilderness, we would shrivel up and die. We need you. And you know that we need you, and you know it so much you sent your son to die on the cross for the likes of us, even while you were enemies. We were your enemies. Christ died for us. You were our friend when we were not yours. Lord, drive these truths home, and may they make a practical difference in our followership of you. And I pray, Lord, that if there are any here this morning who have yet to trust you, really trust you as Savior and Lord and follow you, that they would come to their senses and simply repent and pray to you, God, I know I've sinned. I know I've fallen short. I know I've had trust issues. I have not placed my faith in you. But today, Lord, I want to trust you and follow you wherever you go. I want to trust you, Jesus, as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving my sins. Thank you for being my hero. Thank you for dying on the cross for the likes of me. And I want to follow you the rest of my days. Lord, I know I will fall short and I will fail again and again. It just happens. But Lord, I know I have a Savior. I know I have one worth trusting. And that Savior and that one worth trusting is you, God. It's Christ, my Savior and Lord. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for being the hero of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.